Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Max, who after losing his dad to genetic heart disease, went on to receive a life-changing diagnosis of his own. I think it's very hard to comprehend just what it means to somebody with this kind of condition, just to have hope, to have some hope that eventually something might be available to me that could essentially save my life. Yeah, it's just incredible. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Sarah Marsh, and on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Max tells me about learning to live with the loss of his father and how he has adapted to living with a condition called ARVC. So, Max, I thought we could start by talking a little bit about your dad, Chris. Yeah, sure. So, so my dad, uh, his name is Chris. He was a shiatsu and tai chi and qigong teacher. He essentially set up the European Shiatsu School, which uh, mm. taught courses in shiatsu. I guess my earliest childhood memories of, of my dad and memories I have with my dad, a lot of those sort of revolve around uh, those courses and sort of being there whilst he was teaching them, which was quite quite interesting. Uh, Personality-wise, I mean, he fit the stereotype of somebody who uh, taught shiatsu. Like he's very sort of uh, meditative, really interested in Eastern medicine, diet and philosophy. He was a really calm person, wasn't he? I know you said that you, you've sort of inherited that from him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, for sure. In terms of, I wouldn't say my my mum's highly strung or anything, but I certainly uh, mm-hmm. definitely inherited my dad's personality. See, growing up, you knew that he had some heart problems, didn't you? But you that was sort of the extent of what you knew. You didn't specifically know what what those problems were. Uh, no, so we, we didn't actually find out that it was a cardiomyopathy, um, the, the specific cardiomyopathy that it was until after mm. he passed away. I only really have two memories where I was present when he went through an episode and had to go Mm -hmm. to hospital. We had to call the ambulance. And uh, the way that was explained to me at the time was that it was a congenital heart problem, so a heart defect from birth. So there wasn't any mention that it was genetic. And the same goes for my, my mother as well, who didn't... He wasn't aware of the, the specific name of the condition until after my dad passed away. And then do you think that because your dad was sort of really good at managing managing it himself, that he just, he didn't want to worry you perhaps as children or he just didn't feel the need? To be honest, I, I really don't know. I think it's probably a combination. I, I, I think he didn't want to worry us. So I think he... He sort of believed he could overcome it. And I think, obviously, these episodes he had were setbacks. Uh, and for some reason, he just never felt either yeah. the need to tell us or he wanted to protect us in some sort of way. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. too sure. When you were 13, something really life-changing happens to you. You lose, you lose your dad. Um, and if it's okay and you don't mind, I wondered if you could just take us back to that Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's... it's Extremely vivid, obviously, as a memory that sticks in your mind. It was on a Sunday, 
It was actually Remembrance Sunday, 2008. And the night before, we'd gone to my dad's friend's fireworks and barbecue. So I was with my dad the the night before. Uh, It's probably worth mentioning, so my my parents were divorced. Mm -hmm. So I spent typically, I think it's sort of Wednesdays and Thursdays with my dad, rest of the week with my mum, and then weekends would just sort of switch. Mm-hmm. They lived pretty close to each other, so just a 10-minute drive down the road. So it wasn't like we had to travel that far to see uh, either parents. But I remember going to this barbecue the night before, which was great. Uh, it was me, my dad, I think my little brother as well. So he would have been nine at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your brother Tom, this is. My brother Tom, Yeah. And so we then, after, after this barbecue, stayed at my dad's house. The next day on the Sunday, I actually had a hockey match that I was playing in. Mm-hmm. So I remember getting up early and I can't remember the interaction I had with him, actually. Like that, that part is sort of blurred, sort of memories lost. Mm. Uh, so that was, you know, the last interaction mm-hmm. I actually had with him. But I, I remember leaving the house, my friend's parents picked me up to go and take me to this hockey match. I remember it was quite an, quite an important match because I was playing for my town hockey team, Smallborough Hockey Club, mm-hmm. but we were playing Exeter. And then the same friend's parents who picked me up and dropped me off picked us up again and took me to my mum's house. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking in and my sister basically said, uh, dad's had uh, another episode. Uh, I think he's fine. Uh, Mum's just gone to the house to go and uh, check, to go and see him. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting in the shower and fe- I-, I felt something. Like I felt... Like something wasn't right. Yeah, it's quite hard to explain. I'm not sure if this mm. is something I'm fabricating because... I then found out what happened. Mm. But I remember being like particularly worried about it. Yeah. And then I got out of the shower and I went into my room and I, I remember being in my room for uh, and not getting changed for a long period of time mm-hmm. because I just felt kind of on edge, anxious. Yeah. So I was still yeah. just sort of in my towel and then basically my mum just burst through the door and just broke down mm. and she sort of she she shouted it through the house wow. and then I just heard basically yeah. because uh, I was upstairs in my room and then I just obviously uh, broke down as wow. well so correct me if I'm wrong but is it right that your, your dad had had a sudden cardiac arrest and had collapsed is that right he'd, he'd then, had a sudden yeah. cardiac arrest yeah, yeah. so it had a, a well, it started as a VT and then they've gone into ventricular mm-hmm. fibrillation and then yeah, cardiac yeah. arrest. And by the time the ambulance had arrived, it was, tragically, it was too late. Yeah. As a charity, the British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to all of those who already give. It's truly appreciated. If you too would like to donate, you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk forward slash donate.
And now, back to the conversation. I mean, there's so much to process, Max, at such a young age. And, you know, following that, I know um, you said that as a family, as a precaution, you were advised to start going for general heart health checks, weren't you? Not genetic health checks at the time, but you were going for these sort of general checks every few years. And you had one that was clear when you were 14. Mm -hmm. But when you were sort of 17, almost 18, they found something that they were concerned about. Um, Can you tell us what happened next? So essentially, if there's a family history of ARVC, they'd want to screen the children on a semi-regular basis uh, for signs that they're developing the condition. Mm -hmm. Those sort of target criteria that you can, if you hit two out of three of them, I think, then that's an almost certain diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for these specific signs and they use by echoes, ECGs and MRIs to, mm-hmm. to check for signs. So yeah, when I was 14, I went for an initial checkup and that was all clear. I was told nothing was wrong. I still didn't know about the condition. So I, I sort of, I remember being really nervous going to the hospital when I was 14 and, and sort of wondering why I was doing that. Like I just really, it didn't really click. Um, but I, I did think it pretty strange. At this point, my mum had not, uh, hadn't told us about the condition or what it was mm-hmm. and didn't actually until I was actually diagnosed. So that was all fine. So I guess the next three years, I just completely forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Went about my life as usual. And then at 17 towards, or I was almost 18, I essentially got diagnosed within a few days of my birthday. I remember I was playing hockey match again, actually. And my mum then took me to the John Radcliffe afterwards to get uh, an MRI. Yeah. So obviously an MRI is a much more detailed image of the heart so they can view mm-hmm. any abnormalities more easily. So had the MRI done. Uh, I think I had an ECG and an echo as well. And then... Didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. I assumed I'd go for checkups, maybe the same as the last time I went for checkups. It would be all clear. And then, yeah, the, the day I s- started to suspect, and it started to click, yeah. I think I was, playing, I was playing Xbox with my little brother. And the phone rang, and there was a nurse on the phone who basically said, Oh, we've, we've got your Holter Monitor appointment mm-hmm. set up for next week. It's a 24-hour Holter Monitor. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember instantly thinking, like, why? This is really strange. I don't understand why I'm having further investigations done on me. Yeah, yeah. Seeing as I've already gone through all that before. So that's when it sort of started to... Uh, I started to think, okay, is there something wrong here? Like, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. And I still didn't... I didn't bring it up to my mum. I think... In all honesty, I was too scared to. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to... Uh, I was afraid of the truth. I didn't really want to expose that to myself. And I sort of was more comfortable during that period mm-hmm. sort of being in denial, but yeah. also being unsure. Which, again, is a completely natural human reaction, probably how most of us would probably react in that situation, I think. And so that this is... It was this these series of tests and that 24-hour scan 
that led ultimately you to you being diagnosed with the same condition your dad had had, which is ARVC, which is arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. And it was actually Professor Hugh Watkins, wasn't it, who broke the news to you? His, and, and he actually, he is actually the BHF Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine. So a big name within the BHF, but at the time he was just your heart guy, wasn't he? It was the first time you, was that the first time you'd met him? Yes, mm-hmm. I believe, yes, it was. Because before that, I'd only just gone to the hospital for tests. This was the first, the first time I went to the clinic. Yeah. Do, do you remember, I remember you saying to me that he was really gentle when he delivered that life-changing news, but do you remember that conversation quite clearly? I remember it pretty clearly. I mean, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd already read up about the condition and what the effects of the condition were and also mm-hmm. its impact on like an active lifestyle. Yeah. Through that period where I was sort of unsure, uh, I wasn't diagnosed yet and I was, I was sort of researching it and sort of understanding what it, what it really meant. Mm. I did start to sort of realise if I had this condition that all of the sport that I do, competitive sports, would have to stop, like completely stop. We talked a lot about um, you were incredibly active teenager you were playing many sports to a high level particularly mountain biking which was like a real sort of love of your, love of your life at that point wasn't it and you you competed at a very high level so through googling I guess did that make you was that a very sort of stark illustration of how if this was this condition if you were diagnosed with this this was going to have a big impact on your life because you would have to change a lot of things that must have been really hard for you to sort of come to terms with yeah, I mean that was that was the hardest part uh, mm. at that age. Uh, I wasn't, you know, you're still pretty at seventeen, eighteen. You're not, you're not particularly thinking about the rest of your life in much detail. Mm. My long term outlook, obviously, there's so much unknowns that come with this condition, but the certain yeah. immediate impact at that age was the idea or the realization that I was going to have to stop mm. the best of sports, and that was. Uh, incredibly tough because that was like you say it was my my one passion at yeah. the time it was one thing that I was known for doing known for being mm. and I've always done my entire life yeah when you did receive the news from Pro- Professor Hugh that this was the case that you did have ARVC and you were going to have to make sort of quite considerable adaptations to your lifestyle um, and things that you love to do. Um, how did that impact your mental health, Max? I think I am pretty like, mentally robust. Mm. I get, there was no long lasting sort of sense of depression. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. uh, like actually psychologically depressed. I don't think mm-hmm. it just had this constant just sense of just deflation and being a bit lost and a bit confused, mm. uh, probably at that age, resentful and spiteful and sort of, you're thinking, well, why me? Yeah. You know, and especially for someone who, before being diagnosed, essentially thinks they're completely healthy mm-hmm. and you have nothing wrong with you. Like this, this wasn't something that 
uh, I knew about from birth, so I've always had to, had to adjust my lifestyle accordingly. So like a mm-hmm. sudden diagnosis and then a sudden significant change in how you live your life. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough. I think it affected me mentally how it would affect anybody. Yeah. But I definitely try to see the positives mm-hmm. in situations. So getting over sports stuff. And did you, I mean, like you say, the approach here is that you can, you could do certain things that you could still, you know, walk, you could still do some types of sport, just not contact sport. And so was it a case of you trying to focus, as you say, on what you could do rather than what you couldn't? Yeah, I mean, so so the conversation with Hugh Watkins when I actually went to the mm-hmm. clinic, yeah. he, his approach at the time was kind of like, you've met the criteria that would indicate that you have this condition. Mm. We're not 100% certain because we haven't done any genetic testing, mm-hmm. but we're pretty sure. And then he, he basically said, you could continue with your active lifestyle if you wanted to, and mm-hmm. potentially nothing would happen and mm-hmm. you'd be okay. Or you could uh, take precautionary measures and stop the competitive side of things and stop uh, exercising so rigorously because there is a chance something can happen. Yeah. And exercise is linked to progression within this disease. So he wasn't, he wasn't sort of black and white. He definitely tried to take an approach that wouldn't instantly just crush me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And say, Max, you have to stop all strenuous activity right now. Yeah. Uh, and I think he probably put the ball in in my court to try and figure out what my boundaries were. Yeah. And that was definitely helpful for my mental recovery because I, I stopped all competitive activities. So I couldn't I stopped racing bikes, stopped playing hockey competitively and doing athletics competitively. And I basically <clears throat> just uh, just mountain bikes for leisure at, at the start. So I, I did it pretty lightly, but I still could do it sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and then it was a sort of learning process from there around what I could tolerate. So it was sort of, it was, a, it was this big learning curve that you were on. And then within a few months of you being diagnosed with ARVC, your younger brother, Tom, who you mentioned earlier, who's four years younger than you, was also diagnosed with the same genetic heart condition did that help at the time or would you say has that helped in the years since knowing that he's going through the same thing as you uh yeah I mean we don't really talk about it that much like our actual like what we're going through mm-hmm. to be honest. We sort of no no make, make light of it uh we don't really have do you even joke about it sometimes then is that we joke, is we, that, we joke about yeah. it sometimes not yeah Again, still not really. Like sometimes we'll say stuff, but mm-hmm. for the most part we sort of push it under the rug. Yeah, like you say, you want to focus on what you can do than what you can't do, don't you? So, mm. but after you were both diagnosed, you both went on to have ICDs fitted within a few months as a precaution. And then within about six months, you had your first shock from your ICD. You were snowboarding, weren't you? Can you tell us a bit about what happened? So coincidentally or not, 
I did have my first shot, like you say, a matter of months after I had my ICD put in. Mm-hmm. And having originally been asymptomatic. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why those coincided so closely. And the same mm-hmm. with my little brother. He was, he would be 13, 14 when he was diagnosed. Okay. And then he had an ICD put in and a matter of months after him having his ID, ICD put in, he also had his first shots. Yeah. Which is quite strange to yeah. think about. So yeah, quite, quite strange that happened. But yeah, it I, is. Was, I decided to do a ski season mm-hmm. again because I wasn't sort of suddenly constraining all of the activity that I was doing. I, I told yeah. myself that I'd take it uh, lightly and not exert myself too much all this sort of stuff, uh, which is which I learned is very difficult. Yeah, so it is. It's quite full on, but equally, I suppose when you're told something like this, it makes you want to take advantage of as many opportunities as possible. Yeah. So this this would very much fit that, wouldn't it? You know, it's yeah. a great opportunity to say something to say you've done. You've done a mm. ski season is a great mm. thing to be able to say you've done. So you you were at, you were in France, is that right? I was in France and I was snowboarding with a couple of my friends on yeah. our sort of break between um, breakfast and before we go and big dinner. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of just snowboarding pretty hard. Like I wasn't really taking many breaks. Mm-hmm, and I was mm-hmm. going quite hard, basically quite fast and pushing myself. It's quite easy to just forget when you're in the moment that you should be constraining yourself mm. if you don't have like apparent symptoms that would remind mm-hmm. you of it straight away. So yeah. I was yeah, snowboarding. One of my friends was in front of me, one, one was behind me. We went sort of off piste. Mm-hmm. I remember feeling like I needed to sit down, but not knowing what had happened, or that I'd gone into VT, just thinking that my heart was beating really quickly and I should probably take a break because mm-hmm. it's suddenly beating really fast now. I think the reason for that is because I was so stimulated, like exercising in the cold air, mm-hmm. my body was wrapped up in those layers of clothing. I couldn't really feel the sensation of being in VT. And because it had never happened before, I didn't realize hmm. uh when it happens now i'm very much aware of this straight away yeah but then i sat down to sort of take a breather and out of nowhere uh suddenly it was shocked by my device hmm. Hmm. and for the first split second i still didn't know what happened i thought no. that my friend who was behind me hmm. had just skied into hmm. the back of me yeah really fast i thought he had just it felt like like a car had driven into the back of me. Basically. Wow. Uh, I sort of, I was shocked and then I, I sort of uh, turned around and I, I, I realised straight away basically, like after that moment of, of confusion, what happened. And then I sort of went into shock from then. Like I mm. didn't really know how to deal with it. I shouted to my friends. Obviously I, I led on the side of the piece and the, the blood wagon came. Uh, picked me up and then went to the hospital in an yeah. ambulance and did some checks mm. and they then uh, prescribed me mm-hmm. into blocker. So that was the first mm-hmm. time I started taking medication. Okay. So they had to check that the ICD had sort of gone off appropriately, and as worked. it were. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first time that you had had a shock. 
And as you say, it was a real shock to you because you'd been asymptomatic, you'd had no symptoms before. But over the years sort of since, have you had many more shocks? I think you said before that you've had sort of patterns of months where sometimes you have quite a few together and then you can go for a few months without any shocks. Is that how it's played out? Yeah, I mean, I've I've had a lot of shocks mm. overall. You go through periods, sort of hot spells, where your heart's slightly more aggravated. Okay. Sort of way. Due to how this, this condition works, you get periods of aggravation where there's sort of fibrosis okay. uh, occurring in your heart, it's scarring. And as that's happening, your heart gets agitated and it, it, it then acts up more easily. So I go through periods, yeah, hot spells and then more stable spells. And that's sort of been the, the cycle ever since, mm-hmm. really. Mm. So do you, how do you sort of manage it? Is it very much a case of just living your life as normally as possible? If one happens, it happens. Yeah, I mean, it's a learning curve. So I think right. it, for the last sort of nine years, I've only gone through life slowly being forced to initially sort of constrain and eventually drop those things in life that are mm. sort of really important to me. So yeah. start with mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Then uh, even doing mountain biking uh, without competing, like leisure, mm. leisurely. And then it was sort of like going to the gym, having to get shocks at the gym mm. and realising I couldn't do that anymore. Uh, obviously, you go to university and you, you drink a lot and that sort of stuff. And yeah. Same learning curve there. Like yeah. Going out three nights in a row. Mm. And then things happening. And yeah. that part's really tough because, I, again, like I said, I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite mentally robust in the sense that mm. I don't get mm. like, PTSD afterwards. I'm quite good at getting a shock mm. and then not living in a state of PTSD where I'm... Yeah suddenly having uh, sort of anxiety attacks or no. sort of phantom episodes and stuff. I think something's going to happen, I panic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you pick, you pick yourself up pretty quickly. But like you say, is it been, it's a case of learning, learning your own limits. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the only way. Yeah. Well, I couldn't imagine, obviously, people don't really have a choice in how they react to these sorts of things. But if I was going to, if I couldn't deal with it in the way that I do, I think it would be a lot worse off. Yeah. Because it would affect me day to day. Yeah. To the no, point sure. where it's debilitating, I think. So you try and try not to dwell on it. Mm. Fast forward to to now, Max, and I know that you're you're doing really well, you're happy with your partner, you've got a really busy job, you see your friends a lot, you have you live in London. Do you think about the RVC every day or is it yeah. sort of a fleeting thought that comes and goes? I mean, how Every often day. does it play on your mind? Every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, to different degrees. Even in my decision-making day-to-day, like every decision I make, it's a part of that decision. Yeah. So even to the point now where it's like, if, if a friend wants to go to the pub midweek and I'm drinking, mm-hmm. then I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I do that, the day after, I'm probably going to have a few more palpitations and it's going to be a little bit worse, so I can't do this. Yeah. And then if I go out on Friday, then I can't do anything particularly, not strenuous, but yeah, something, I can't really push myself anywhere on Saturday. No, sure. And 
even for like work and stuff as well. So like every decision I make to do something has a knock-on effect in my mm. mind. So I'm mm. like pre-planning my life so that I'm not trying not to push myself too hard yeah. or yeah. So too strenuous. It would be hard to be really spontaneous. You have to sort of think ahead. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in spontaneous in with regards to things that yeah might not necessarily be the best thing for me. I can't, sure. I can't constrain my life to the point where I'm no uh, just completely inactive and never drink alcohol, no. never sort of see, see my friends and put myself in sort of situations where you're excited or nervous. No. You know. So you've you've, you've managed despite everything to learn to live pretty well with ARVC and I just I mean and we're sort of you know coming up to 10 years now down the road from when you first received your diagnosis I just wondered if you had any advice for any for others who might recently have been diagnosed with a with cardiomyopathy or with your specific condition yeah I mean I guess the the shock of it when you first get diagnosed is mm. incredibly hard to deal with because yeah. there's both the aspect of, of sort of the, the changes you have to make to your lifestyle and a lot of people that get diagnosed with this condition young are athletes right uh, so that part is very difficult and also the, the sort of long-term prognosis and obviously you read stuff about heart failure heart transplants mm. all this sort of stuff I guess don't let what you read online sort of guide exactly how you think because mm. it's can be pretty ominous. Yeah. And if I was to go back in time and speak to myself when I was 17, 18, I would tell yeah. myself to constrain my lifestyle probably more than I did in terms of sports and going out and all these sorts of things, which I think that hasn't been good for my heart. I think you you set yourself a boundary and you should really think about that boundary. Mm-hmm. And it should be a boundary that allows you to still do things to enjoy your life. But the link between exercise and progression is definitely there. Yeah. Like if you read up about it, it's the one thing that, that causes progression within your yeah. disease. So although I may not have completely stopped all the exercise yeah. I was doing, I, pro- I probably would tell myself now to, to rein it in. Okay. Um, that's as hard as that would be, yeah. I think I think I. You're at that age. You're quite short-sighted. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You think you're invincible. Essentially, yeah. So it's, it's a pretty yeah. hard, hard hit, hard thing to take from yourself that you're definitely not. Yeah. Well, just wanted to talk a little bit now, if, if that's okay, just about Cure Heart, because I know it's it is a project very close to your heart because. The guy heading it up is is your heart guy, Professor Hugh Watkins. He's obviously a very important name here at the BHF. And he is heading up a team of international scientific researchers who've been awarded the biggest ever grant in the history of the charity to look into cardiomyopathy. Without getting into the minutiae of the science, it is really groundbreaking stuff, isn't it? Which could really improve outcomes for people living with cardiomyopathy, but also because it is, a, it is often a genetic condition, you know, improve the outcomes for their children and their children's children. And I wondered, you've known, a, you know, you've obviously talked at length 
to Professor Hugh about this. And what are your sort of thoughts on on this this big research project? Yeah, I mean it's completely life changing, completely life changing. In the same in the same way that it's the same intensity that my life changed when I first was diagnosed with this. Yeah, finding out about something like this is probably even more sort of sort of earth shattering when you think mm. about what this could potentially mean for me. I mean, I'm 27 and I know a lot of these sort of genetic therapies or research projects in general take a long time to go through the steps, even up to clinical trials and then having something that's available in the market. So I'm probably at that sort of age and my heart's at a sort of point where I'm, I'm thinking, and I have some hope that this could this could be something that's available to me, available yeah. to me just in time for me. Yeah. And that is to even think about it. I try not to think about it to be honest uh, too much now because it's it's too far away and it's too unconcrete. Like I know mm. that the research he's doing now has the funding, which is absolutely incredible. Yeah. But there's still the sort of five year research project and then clinical trials. So I try not to think about it too much um, no. but having something there that could potentially at the very least alleviate my symptoms and stop progression at some point in the future is like yeah uh, I can even explain to you how yeah how that makes I'm... you feel uh, because I've lived I only found out about this I first heard about it just only two years ago but I only really started okay. to hear about it properly a matter of months ago so before mm-hmm. that like my long-term outlook on life was is a lot worse yeah and obviously there's there's things that come with that right no sure yeah. and I mean you when we first spoke you described it I thought in a really nice way you said to me the BHF is funding hope with this project the BHF is funding hope and I just think that's a really nice way as you say it's early days but it's such a nice way to encapsulate the potential power of this work I just wondered if you could expand on that a little bit maybe if you don't mind yeah, I just, I, I think it's very hard to comprehend mm. uh, just what it means to somebody with this kind of condition, just yeah. to have hope Yeah. from the outside. It's like before, if we didn't have these sorts of medica- medicines and therapies, as gene therapy I'm talking about, all we have is our uh, medications and things that help alleviate symptoms. Yeah but I'm not an actual cure. Mm. So I know that I'll start a medication and eventually my heart will break through that and I'll have mm. to either up that medication or mm. I'll have to go onto a new medication, which is slightly more powerful, but then comes with more uh, side effects. Yeah. And then eventually I'll break through that and I'll have to have an ablation, which is only a temporary fix. And then eventually mm. my heart will progress through that. And then you're essentially looking at your life as a road towards heart failure. And then you're thinking, do I even plan for my future? Mm -hmm. So to have some hope that eventually something might be available to me that could essentially save my life. Yeah. Yeah, it's just incredible. It's really quite an emotional thing, isn't it? It's, it's, like you say, it, it could allow you to sort of, let yourself think about the future more and I know you're only 27 so you're not thinking about this yet but this could mean 
when you if you decide to have kids that that could impact that decision as well because what this work could mean for future generations well and, and yeah it, it's as important as the effect on myself yeah. right if i'm gonna have children because as soon as you have kids i can imagine your all your anxieties about life and like how protected you are of yourself then it's passed on to children they're more, more important than you are so to have a child with this condition and the worry that comes with that is you know, just as bad if not worse maybe than yeah. somebody with the condition mm. so it would make my decision to have children a lot easier and i do want to have children yeah and i was always i remember the, the day i was diagnosed although the whole sport thing was sort of the forefront of my mind i remember uh, leaving the clinic and getting in the car and thinking to myself like this is going to get a lot worse mm. I, when i when i reach the sort of age where i'm actually thinking about children this is going to yeah. get a lot worse yeah and not just for myself but for my uh future partner to not only have children with that sort of risk it's a big mm. decision of course so in the same way that it gives me hope about myself it's the same the same for my children about potential yeah. children in the future yeah. um, and they'd obviously benefit benefit from it yeah uh, even more so than myself because they might be born into a world where they get genetically tested and if they have the gene mm-hmm. can be given a therapy there and then to stop the disease even uh yeah. manifesting yeah which is just incredible isn't it i mean as we said you are 10 years on now from the initial diagnosis life has changed a lot for you you've had to sort of learn to test your limits to live within your limits but you know you've managed it obviously managed it so incredibly well um what are your hopes for the future max and are you allowing yourself to look a bit further ahead now i want to yeah i mean my very my my simplest hope is just that i can one day go for a run again yeah i think (laughs) If I was to drill into like the very simple sort of desire that I have, yeah. like just to be able to go for a run, do something mm. adrenaline-induced, inducing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, without thinking about it, without it being one of the biggest decisions I make, right, is, is all I really want, I mean, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it sounds strange that doesn't at all my my one sort of uh my dream in life would be to be able to pick and choose what i do in my life and do things that most people just take for granted or probably don't want to do like Like you said yeah a lot of us moan about going for a run and you'd love the opportunity to put on your trainers and get outside i have one wish i could could, uh, go for a run well i mean as you say we are at the start of a journey with the Cure Heart team and Professor Watkins' work, but maybe one day, you know, that will hopefully be the trigger for you to be able to get those trainers on and get get out for a run. And wouldn't that be great? You know, just a, a seemingly small thing to everything else, but for you, mm. a really big deal, a really big life deal. Life-changing. Yeah, life-changing. Just going for a run can be life-changing. <laughs> um, well, listen, thank you so much for your time today and for helping to shine a light on cardiomyopathy because it is something that perhaps not many people have heard of, but it affects, you know, many, many people in the UK today. And thank you for 
for appearing on the Ticker Tapes. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. Max is just one of thousands of people living with cardiomyopathy today. In fact, it's currently estimated that around 260,000 people in the UK carry faulty genes that can cause genetic cardiomyopathies. But the BHF is funding life-changing research into this disease. A £30 million research grant, the biggest in the history of the charity, will go to fund CureHeart, an international team of scientific experts whose vision is to develop the first cures for inherited heart muscle diseases using ultra-precise gene therapy technologies. As Max says, with CureHeart, the BHF is funding hope for him, but also future generations. If you've got any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health, and would find it helpful to speak with a cardiac nurse on the BHF's Heart Helpline, go to our website at bhf.org.uk forward slash heart helpline, where you'll find all the contact options. You'll also find useful information in the episode notes and on our website, bhf.org.uk. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes. <laughs>